Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. For our Advent series, we'll be looking at four different passages from the Gospel according to John, each one focusing on one of Jesus' I Am statements. And we start today in chapter 6, specifically verses 22 to 40. So please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what do you do that we may see and believe you? What sign do you perform? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives Me will come to Me, and whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given Me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before You now with humility, recognizing that apart from Your Spirit's work in our hearts and minds, we cannot hear the Word of God in any sort of profitable way, that we need the Holy Spirit's illumination, that we need the Holy Spirit to quicken our souls, that we can hear the Word of God in a way that benefits us, that encourages us, that draws us in, saves us, strengthens us, sanctifies us and preserves us into the end. And so our, our request to You today, Father, is, is simple. Would You help us to hear with ears of faith? Would You help us to listen and believe? 
I pray, Father, that You would give me grace now to speak clearly and without error from the Scriptures. I pray for Your people to have discernment that we might know the truth from error, that we might be built up, God, into this truth that You have spoken in Jesus Christ. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make. It's Christmas time. I figured I should go ahead and tell you this. The confession to make. Up until several years ago, I didn't like the song, What Child Is This? I just didn't like it at all until about five years ago. In fact, it was one of my least favorite songs to sing at Christmas. To me, the song just seemed unnecessary. Why write a Christmas carol built around a question everybody already knows the answer to? What child is this? It's Jesus, of course. Haven't you seen all the signs saying Jesus is the reason for the season? The song just seemed completely unnecessary. I didn't see the point for such an obvious song. Mercifully, however, the Lord, as He often does in my life, pointed out how far off my initial perception had been. I don't remember when it changed, but at some point, I realized the carol's question, what child is this, is not a request for information. It's an invitation to wonder and marvel at the child who was born in Bethlehem. It's not a request for information. It's an invitation to wonder. You see, this is what makes the song so helpful. The question forces you to slow down and reflect upon the profound mystery that God the Son took on human flesh and was born as a helpless baby. As the hymn sings out, here is the one whom angels celebrate and adore, and yet now he's guarded by lowly shepherds. Here is the one who holds the universe together by the word of his power, yet he can speak no words as he lies helpless in his mother's arms. It's too magnificent to comprehend the incarnation of Christ. But that's the burden of the song. It's not a request for information as though we didn't know the answer. It's an invitation to wonder afresh at the most staggering mystery in all of the Bible that God the Son became man for us and for our salvation. Friends, the burden of that wonderful Christmas carol is also the reason why we celebrate Advent. Each year on the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, we as a church pause and reflect on Jesus' first coming into this world. That's what the word Advent means. It means arrival. And that's what Advent is for the church. It's a period of time purposefully set aside to consider what God has done in the sending of His Son. But the aim of this purposeful time is not primarily to give you information as though you don't know what's going on. It's not even primarily about maintaining tradition. Advent is an invitation to stop. Don't you want to slow down just a little bit? Advent is an invitation to stop for just a few short weeks and marvel afresh at the coming of the Son of God. You see, as magnificent as the incarnation is, we actually tend to overlook it. Our fast-paced world has no use for such deep and astounding truth. We're too busy looking for the next tip or technique that will help me make it through the day. And in doing that, we end up minimizing the one truth necessary for understanding God, this world, and ourselves. The truth of Christ's person and work. 
We don't have a use for such profound things. And the result is devastating. What we end up with is actually a Christless Christianity. You actually see this quite clearly at Christmas time. We're surrounded by things that are loosely biblical. The star, the shepherds, the angels, some echoes of Luke chapter 2. But there's no substance to it. It's hollow. There's no weight of glory that binds your heart ever more deeply to the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, that's why we do this year after year. Because if nothing else, we want a Christ-centered Christianity. We want some weight and some substance. We know our hearts are prone to wander. And we want to be bound to God with the truth, the most magnificent truth the world has ever conceived, that God became man for us and our salvation. We celebrate Advent not because we need information about Jesus. We celebrate these four weeks in order to wonder at the most marvelous reality ever conceived, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what better way to do this, friends, than with Jesus' own words, the things He declared to be true about Himself, As I said at the outset, we're going to focus this year on four of Jesus' I am statements from the Gospel according to John. He actually has seven of them, so I just picked four. If you don't like my selections, then I would encourage you to study the Gospel of John on your own, and you could find some benefit there as well. We're going to pick four of Jesus' I am statements. What makes these statements so powerful is their simplicity. The Lord Jesus speaks of Himself with images so clear, so simple, that even a child could understand what He means. Take take today's passage, for example, where Jesus declares Himself to be the bread of life. On one level, that's not a hard image to understand. We need bread to live. It nourishes us, strengthens us, sustains us throughout the day. So when Jesus says that He's the bread of life, He's declaring that He is the one essential piece for living in this world. It's a simple image, like all of the other I am statements, and that's what makes them so powerful. And yet, there's so much more here, isn't there? You see, this is the beauty of Jesus' teaching in this particular Gospel account. He speaks in clear language with striking simplicity, but there's so much truth, there's so much impact and insight jammed into His words. Again, consider today's passage. Jesus' declaration in verse 35 is clear enough. He is the bread of life. But the entire passage from verse 22 on unfolds the remarkable depth of what that means. In fact, that's how I'd like us to spend our time in this text today. Let's start in verse 22 and let's ask ourselves, what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be the bread of life? What does this image reveal about His person, who He is, and His work, what He came to accomplish? As we ask those questions, friends, we'll find that there are at least four different perspectives on Jesus' identity that arise from this simple but powerful image. Four different perspectives on what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. The first comes in verses 22 to 27 where we see Jesus is the enduring bread 
who alone can satisfy the human soul. Jesus is the enduring bread who alone can satisfy the human soul. You'll notice in verse 22 that Jesus appears quite popular. There's a large crowd of people looking for Him, and even more folks are joining Him by the minute. And on the surface, the crowd's enthusiasm seems commendable. I mean, isn't it a good thing that these people are seeking Jesus, as it says in verse 24? Well, yes and no. Of course it's good to seek Jesus if you do so with the right motives. But there's a hint in verse 23 that the crowd's motives aren't entirely pure. Notice what the text says. Verse 23, Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Friends, that reference to bread takes us back to the beginning of the chapter where we find one of Jesus' most memorable miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure you remember that miracle, how Jesus took just a few loaves and fish and He was able to satisfy the hunger of this massive multitude. I'm sure you remember that. The crowd here certainly seems to remember. In fact, that's why they're seeking Jesus in hopes of getting another meal. The crowd can't get past their own appetite. They know enough to conclude that Jesus is significant, but they're confused as to why. That confusion becomes quite clear in verse 25. The crowd eventually finds Jesus, but notice how they address Him in their question. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Rabbi is certainly a term of respect. It's a title you would give to someone who is a recognized teacher. It's an honorific label that you could ascribe to someone. But at this point, Rabbi is entirely out of place. I mean, think about it. Here is a man who just fed 5,000 people from one picnic basket, and you're going to call him teacher? That's not nearly enough. What's more, they're going to spend the rest of the chapter arguing with Jesus' teaching. They're entirely confused. They, they see, but they don't see. They don't recognize Jesus for who He is. They witness the miracle, but tragically they've missed the point. Jesus, however, doesn't go along with their, with their confusion. Notice in verse 26 how He exposes their hearts. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Understand, Jesus is not being evasive here. He's actually being merciful. In order for the crowd to come to the truth, they first have to see the depravity of their own hearts. They've witnessed the sign, but they missed what the sign signified. Remember, Jesus' miracles in and of themselves were not the point. Jesus is the point. The miracle, the sign, pointed to Him. But that's just what the crowd has missed, isn't it? They're looking for Jesus because they want more bread. They should have eaten the bread and realized what they needed was Jesus. But the Lord's not finished with the crowd. He knows they are after Him for the wrong reasons, but He doesn't write them off. He's patient. He gives them the necessary correction. Notice what Jesus says, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Friends, you see what Jesus is doing here? He's shifting 
their focus. He's reminding the crowd that what they truly need is not physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment. He's calling them to think not so much about today, but about eternity. You see, the crowd thinks their greatest need is their next meal. But Jesus says, no, your greatest need is to know me. I'm the bread that endures. I'm the one the Father has sent. I'm the one who has been stamped with God's approval. I'm the one who gives life everlasting. The crowd sees, but they don't see. In trying to get their bellies filled, they're missing Jesus. The one who came to satisfy not their appetites, but actually their souls. Brothers and sisters, before we go any further, we need to consider that this exchange with the crowd proclaims a message that we as Christians in the 21st century desperately need to hear. There are many people in our world who think of Jesus like the crowd does here in John 6. They know Jesus is important, but they view Him primarily as a means of getting what they want. And sadly, this is true not just of folks out in the world, but also of folks within the church. Think of how easily and how often Jesus is treated as a means to an end. He came to give you a better life. He came to fulfill your desires and longings. He came to change everything about you that you don't like about yourself. Here's the problem with that mindset. It makes Jesus far too small. It misses the depth and the glory of His identity as the bread of life. He did come to satisfy you, friend. Not just satisfy your physical desires, but satisfy your very soul. He did come to infuse your life with joy. Not the joy of better circumstances, but the joy of being adopted into the family of God. He did come to make you rich. Not with a nice car and a large bank account, but with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you see the depth and the glory that we so often miss? As C.S. Lewis once said, our problem is not that our desires are too strong, but they're too weak. We're, we're far too easily satisfied with such a small Jesus. We're so often content with such lesser things. When we make Jesus nothing more than a means to our end, we not only rob Him of His glory, which is terrifying, we also rob ourselves of the satisfaction He came to bring as the bread of life. So my exhortation here is really quite simple. Let's not settle for this small, truncated Jesus. Let's run hard after Christ because we're convinced by God's Word and God's Spirit that nothing else in all the creation can satisfy our souls. Jesus came not simply to fill our bellies, Jesus came not simply to give us what we want. He came as the enduring bread who alone can satisfy the deepest hungers and longings and thirsts of the human soul, the hunger and the thirst to know God. Let's pursue Him for that. As we move to verse 28, we find our second perspective on the bread of life. Jesus is the heavenly bread who alone can bring us to God. Jesus is the heavenly bread who alone can bring us to God. Despite 
despite the clarity of Jesus' correction, the, the crowd still thinks in earthly, physical terms. Notice their question in verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, if you think about that, that question is an astonishing display of self-confidence and not in a good way. Jesus has just said that He is the one who gives eternal life. His words were clear and unambiguous. Eternal life is a gift from God that comes only through the Son. And yet, at the very next moment, what does the crowd do? They ask Jesus what work they need to perform. You see, the crowd not only misunderstands Jesus, but they misunderstand themselves. This is always the case. When you lose sight of God, you lose sight of yourself. They're far too confident in their own abilities. In their minds, whatever task God might set before them, they're more than capable of doing it. Just tell us what God wants us to do to get eternal life and we'll do it. As before, Jesus responds with merciful correction. Notice verse 29. Jesus calls the crowd to humble themselves in faith. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Friends, let no one ever tell you that the good news of justification by faith alone began with Luther or even with the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus Himself preaches this gospel of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. The Lord Jesus preaches this good news. There are no works we must do because there are no works that would be sufficient. There is nothing sinners like us could do to raise ourselves up to heaven. There is nothing we could do that we'd earn eternal life. Only the Son who has come down from the Father is able to bring sinners up into the Father's presence. Indeed, that is Jesus' point. Notice His logic in verse 29. He alone has been sent from God which means He alone knows the way to God. He's the one who has come down. He is the only one who can raise sinners up. That is why salvation is by faith in Christ. Because only the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is able to do this. In fact, notice notice how explicitly Christ-centered this faith is in verse 29. Jesus says we must believe in Him. He doesn't just say believe in the idea of God. There are countless numbers of people who will be condemned on the last day who believe in God. Believing in God is far too vague to be helpful. The Lord Jesus says we must believe in Him. You see, faith is is certainly an expression of trust in Jesus' work, His life, death, and His resurrection. But faith is also an expression of confidence in Jesus' person, that He is who He claimed to be. In order for faith to have any value, it must embrace as its treasure and confidence the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Faith on its own has no value. There's nothing magical about faith. It is faith's object, the Lord Jesus Christ, that establishes faith's value. Look to Him, brothers and sisters, Focus on His person and work, His glory and His truth. It's only that kind of Christ-centered faith that is able to please God and strengthen our souls. Look to Him. Even as I say that, I realize there may be some here this morning who don't know Christ by faith. You've never trusted in Jesus' person and work. And maybe 
Maybe, like the crowd here in John 6, you're confident in your own ability to do what God might require of you. If that's you this morning, I pray the Spirit would open your ears to hear this truth that is actually very good news. There is no work you can do to attain eternal life. If you had a thousand lifetimes and all you did in each of those lifetimes were good deeds, you would never get one millimeter closer to God. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you must do. Instead, God the Father graciously calls you to humble yourself in faith before the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Believe that He is the Son of God who has come down from the Father. Believe that as He hung there on the cross, it was your sin He bore in His body. It was your punishment He took upon Himself. And then believe that when He rose up again on the third day, it was your resurrection that He accomplished. That's the Gospel, friend. That's the good news. It's the good news that Jesus alone is able to bring sinners like us into the presence of God. Only the Son has come down from the Father, and therefore only faith in that Son can bring you once again to know God. Trust Him. Trust Him this morning and be saved. Jesus is the heavenly bread who alone can bring us to God. Verse 30, we find the third perspective on Jesus' identity. Jesus is the true bread who alone reveals the Father. Jesus is the true bread who alone reveals the Father. The crowd takes it to another level in verse 30. They directly challenge Jesus. Notice what they say, verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They're daring Him, basically. They say to Jesus, essentially, prove it. You want us to trust you? Then you've got to prove it. Now, never mind, Jesus has already done a number of signs, including feeding the multitude the day before. That was yesterday's news. The crowd wants something today. And what they really want is more bread. Notice verse 31. The crowd uses the Old Testament in an attempt to manipulate Jesus to act. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Understand, friends, the crowd is not the least bit concerned with God's Word. Not at all. They don't care about the Exodus story. They just want another meal. So again, they tell Jesus, prove it. You claim that you're greater than Moses, then why don't you do what Moses did and then we'll believe you. But as is always the case, Jesus is too wise to play this fool's game. Notice His response in verse 32. He takes the attention off Moses and He puts it where it should be, on God the Father. Look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but My Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Friends, that's a masterful response. Jesus reminds the crowd where Israel's manna came from. It didn't come from Moses. It came from God. And that's the key. The manna was intended not so much to, f to fill Israel's bellies, but to reveal Israel's God. As the people gathered the manna, morning after morning, they learned God's faithfulness, His sufficiency, His mercy, His goodness and grace. Yes, it was bread, but it was bread with a message. And the message had to do with God. 
And the same is true now at this moment with the crowd. The feeding of the multitude was more than a meal. It was a message intended to reveal the truth. Jesus makes this clear in verse 33. Notice what He says. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Did you catch what Jesus did in that statement? Instead of referring to the bread as a thing, He referred to it as a who, as a person. You see, that's what Jesus wants the people to understand. Israel's manna in the wilderness was actually about Him. In all their clamoring for more bread, they're missing the bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't come just to feed people. Jesus has come to make the Father known. Friends, I pray we would see here the unspeakable privilege we have of knowing God through Jesus Christ. Let's not overlook this. This is a foretaste of eternal life in the here and now. That's what Jesus means when He says He came to give life. Those who know Christ by faith get a foretaste of the eternal life to come. Remember what Jesus would say later in John chapter 17? This is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That life is there for us now. And through His Word, the Lord Jesus is calling us to enter into that life day by day by feeding on Him in faith. So, I've said it it before. I've said it this morning. I've said it many times, but I'm going to say it again because it's the most important message that we need to hear. Let's make it our aim to know this Christ. To know Him by faith. To know Him through His Word through prayer, through the communion of saints in the church, gathered around Christ's table, feasting on the Gospel, and beholding in His face the very glory of God. In a very real sense, friends, this is what we were made to do. To know God through Christ. Are you pursuing Him? Are you taking up His Word to know God through the revelation of His Son? Are you communing with Him in prayer? That is eternal life in the here and now. This is what we're made to do. This is the grand purpose of life that puts everything else in its proper orbit. Before we can understand our, ourselves, our families, our calling, our careers, our, whatever it is, before we can understand any of those things, we need to understand who God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true bread who alone reveals the Father. So therefore, let's make it our aim to know this Christ. That brings us to verse 35, where we find the final perspective on Jesus' identity. Jesus is the faithful bread who alone can keep the Father's people. Jesus is the faithful bread who alone can keep the Father's people. The crowd's unbelief persists even still. Notice verse 34. They ask Jesus, Sir, give us this bread Always. That's not necessarily a respectful statement. They're just trying to cut to the chase. Like, just give us the bread. Right? Just, just give us the bread. They don't believe. All they see is physical bread because honestly that's all they want. So in verse 35, Jesus tells them plainly who He is. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger and whoever believes in Me shall not thirst. 
Friends, that's a wonderfully clear statement of all Jesus has been saying throughout the chapter. He alone is the bread. He alone satisfies. He alone reveals God. He is that bread. But then notice what Jesus does in verse 36. After this clear summary, He confronts the crowd's unbelief. But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. Now, if you think about it, in the flow of the chapter, this verse presents something of a problem. Verse 36 is problematic. If Jesus is the bread of life, and if He has come down from the Father, then shouldn't people believe in Him? Doesn't their unbelief cast doubt on Jesus' claims? I mean, if He is the bread, if He has come down, shouldn't they believe? It seems like Jesus' Jesus's mission is a failure at this point. He came to give life, and yet no one believes. They just want bread. Do you see the problem? Jesus' identity is on the line, so to speak, because of the crowd's persistent hard-heartedness. Well, notice the answer Jesus gives to the problem in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You see, when it comes to Jesus' mission, it's not the human will that determines things, it's the Father's will. God's will is sovereign. So, all whom the Father gives will certainly come. And when they do, the Son will certainly receive them. Jesus' mission does not rest upon how people respond to Him. Jesus' mission rests upon the will of God. In fact, look down at verse 44 where Jesus eliminates any doubt. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's not the human will that determines things. It's God's will. So if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus is telling you how that happened in your life. If you're a Christian, He's telling you how it happened. God the Father who is sovereign over all determined to call you to Christ not on the basis of anything you had done, but merely on the basis of His pleasure as being God. That's what the Bible calls election. Through the Spirit, that gracious call of the Gospel invaded the deadness of your heart and gave you new life. That's what the Bible calls regeneration. Then, as the Gospel awakened your heart to Christ, you beheld the Lord Jesus in all of His glory, you turned from your sin, and you trusted in His name. That's what the Bible calls conversion. The Father elects, the Spirit regenerates, and the Son saves through faith in His name. Father, Son, and Spirit. If you're a Christian today, that's your testimony, and it's a testimony of grace. Now, you're probably aware of the fact that some people disagree with that description I just gave. Not everybody agrees that God's will is sovereign. Unfortunately, those arguments tend to generate more heat than light, so I don't want to get into a back and forth this morning. And besides the fact, I think verse 37 and verse 44 are clearer than I could make it, so I'll let God's Word defend itself, not me. Instead, what I want to point you to is how Jesus intends this truth to be a means of great comfort. Notice how the Lord Jesus explains these truths in verses 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven 
not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Friends, do you see Jesus' reasoning here? I hope we do because it's massively encouraging. The Father's will is that all whom He gives to the Son will certainly be saved. And the Son's will is to carry out His Father's will utterly and completely without anyone being lost. The language here is the language of keeping. The Father calls them in and then the Son keeps them in. You put those together. The Father's will to draw His people in. The Son's will to keep them in. You put them together and you get this conclusion. Our confidence as Christians rests not on our ability to keep ourselves in the faith, but on the Son's faithfulness to His Father. This is so... The Lord Jesus will never defy His Father. He will never fail His Father. From eternity past to eternity present, the Son loves His Father and delights to do His Father's will. The Son of God is eternally faithful. And upon that faithfulness, brothers and sisters, we rest our hope. I don't know why I'm still a Christian other than this truth. You see, this is the biblical purpose behind the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. This is one of the clearest texts in all of the Bible that God's election is unconditional. It's one of the clearest texts And what Jesus is using it for is to encourage you. It's meant to encourage us that the triune God, did you see them all present? Father, Son, Spirit. The triune God is absolutely committed to accomplishing the salvation of God's people. Let's not debate this truth, friends. Let's not debate this truth. Let's embrace it as the gospel encouragement the Lord intends it to be. Jesus, the bread of life, is faithful to His Father, and that means He will certainly keep us to the very end. So, what child is this? The Christmas carol asks. He's the bread of life. The one who satisfies the human soul. The one who brings us to God. The one who reveals the Father. And the one who keeps God's people to the end. May our hearts be satisfied in Him, brothers and sisters. And may our souls rejoice in knowing that our salvation is eternally secure in God's faithful Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are good. And Your goodness is seen not in some abstract quality, but in the human face of the Lord Jesus Christ. as we witness Him faithful to the end,